So, don't worry, I'm actually going to only really preach on the first nine verses. <laughs> I guess Jay and I um, got our signals crossed there. Um, but there's some good stuff in there, isn't it? Um, so much good stuff that we can't really get at um, today. But what we're going to focus on today is wisdom and knowing the will of God. Now, what's interesting is, of all the ancient texts that we have, and we have lots of ancient texts from different peoples, different religions, if you put them all together and you look at what topic they address, the number one topic of all the ancient texts that we have is knowing the will of the gods. Knowing the will of the gods was the obsession of ancient people. But what is a clear contrast between all of these other texts and what you find in the scripture and what you find in Proverbs 16 is the the assumption, the starting point for all of the other texts, all of the other peoples, is that knowing the will of the gods comes through mastering certain techniques, learning certain skills. When you come to the Bible, you actually find nothing like that. You don't. What you find in the Bible is a remarkable contrast. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a God who hides his will from men and women. He is a God who clearly speaks. And it's tremendously gracious of him to no longer leave his people groping in the dark. How am I to live? What am I to be about? What should I care about? What should I mourn about? How then shall I live? God speaks clearly. He doesn't play hide and seek with his people. The loving God of the Bible is a God who reveals himself. But I work with college students. I've been working with college students for 25 years. And all I can tell you is most Christians that I talk to today, when you talk to them about knowing God's will, their understanding seems to reflect more the pagan ideas of a God who hides his will and techniques that we need to master than it does the biblical perspective that we just read about. And it's not just me. There's a guy named Bruce Walkie who was the editor for the New International Version, the Old Testament editor for the NIV translation. He's one of the most remarkable Old Testament scholars of our day. He wrote this in a book called Knowing God's Will, colon, A Pagan Notion? Question mark. It's a strong book and one I commend to you. He says this, When I hear Christians talking about the will of God, they often use phrases like, If only I could find God's will, as though he's keeping it hidden from them. Or, I'm praying that I'll discover his will for my life. Because apparently they believe the Lord doesn't want them to find it. Or that he wants to make it as hard as possible for them so that they will prove their worth. Unfortunately, these concepts do not mesh with the balance of Scripture. But it's not just that they don't mesh with the balance of Scripture. They actually... They actually provoke so much of the anxiety that we were talking about. As I'm sitting through this service, I'm like, oh, all these things tie in so well. Because what you think about how to know the will of God has everything to do with who you think God is and what he's like. 
You know that passage in Matthew 6 that we read, the New Testament passage. God does not just say, Jesus doesn't just say, don't be anxious. I don't know about you, but if, if I asked you, recall Matthew 6 and where Jesus says, don't be anxious, you might remember there's something in there about the birds and about the flowers and, the, and whatnot. But Jesus gives way more verses to the character of our Father in that passage than he does telling us to not be anxious. The Bible actually never gives bare commands where it just says do this. They're always anchored in who God is and what he's done. And so it is with this idea that we're going to look at today of knowing God's will. What you understand about knowing God's will has everything to do and reflects and shapes your understanding of who God is. Well, what are some of the techniques that Bruce Walkie is concerned about that I would say we should be concerned about? We're going to look at a few of these, and then we're going to see how Proverbs 16 offers such a refreshing and freeing contrast. I'll start with a big one. Peace in your heart. I can't tell you how often I talk to people who are wrestling with what is God's will for my life, and, and they think the way to find it is you pray, and then God gives you peace in your heart. And when you have peace in your heart, you know that's the direction you should go. I actually would challenge you to find a single verse in the Bible that promises peace in your heart as the, as the umpire or as the light to guide you into what you're to do. Consider this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, torn up as he's about to head to the cross, prays to his Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. I would submit to you, you do not there have a picture of peace in his heart. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that Jesus' sweat was like great drops of blood. Was it God's will for him to go to the cross? Absolutely. Do you have peace in his heart? Peaceful, easy feelings? Not at all. Not at all. So I don't know why people have this idea. Does God give us a peace that passes understanding? Yes, because he has wrought peace. Jesus, through the, through the work at the cross, has wrought peace between God and man and between man and man. But never does the Bible promise peace as the guide for what you're to do with your life. As a matter of fact, we just read at the very end. I'm glad that we actually read the rest of Proverbs 16. There is a way that seems right to a man. That seems like peace, but in the end, leads to death. It's strong, but that's what the Bible says. In fact, the more you read the Bible, you find that living by faith usually feels like death. I know that may not be what you wanted to hear, but it may actually really help you. <laughs> living by faith initially feels like death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. So peace in your heart doesn't really work. The Bible nowhere promises it. How about laying out a fleece? I don't know if you guys have ever been around Christians that talked about this, that, you know, I'm basically going to not set my alarm, and if God wants me to go to class in the morning, well, he'll wake me up. And, and I won't know whether he wants me to go unless he, he does something, some kind of sign like that, Right? You see, the story of Gideon in Judges was a story about a guy who should have taken the word of God as enough. God condescends. 
because he's a gracious, condescending God. But that nowhere gives us a paradigm. This is how you are to figure out God's will, by laying out a fleece and putting God to the test, especially when he's spoken clearly in his word. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 12. uh, Jesus says, it's a sinful generation that seeks for a sign. There are other kinds of signs. You know, Bruce Walkie goes through lots of different techniques that ancient peoples use. Not only astrology, looking at the stars, but one of the most popular ways that ancient kings would look to determine the will of the gods was to cut open animals and look at their entrails or their liver. Both of those were seen as really helpful ways to figure out the will of the gods. There are the casting of lots or arrows, consulting mediums, all kinds of things. But Walkie says about this, God is not a magic genie. The use of promise boxes, flipping open your Bible and pointing your finger, relying on the first thought to enter your mind after a prayer are unwarranted forms of Christian divination. That's strong. The reliance of special signs from God is the mark of an immature person, someone who simply can't believe the truth is presented, but must have a special miraculous sign as a symbol of authority from God. It's worth considering. This is one of the foremost Old Testament scholars of our generation. Well familiar with the ancient Near Eastern world and the assumptions, and also so pastorally concerned about the way all of these techniques reflect on who God is. Is he hiding his will? Is finding the will of God something that we have to learn special techniques to be able to figure out? There's more. What about waiting for a word? I was talking to one of my students even this week who had been at a church recently where You know, they they regularly will say, you know, I have a word straight from the Lord for you. All I would say about this is be very cautious. Be skeptical. It's hard to sometimes. You feel like you're unspiritual if you want to discern the spirit sometimes in our day and age. But Deuteronomy 18, God actually knows that his people are going to need to know whether someone who claims to speak on God's behalf really is speaking on God's behalf. If you remember the story of Israel, Moses led the people to Mount Sinai, and God spoke to all of Israel from Mount Sinai, and the people said, Lord, we can't handle this. Take Moses up on the mountain and speak to him. So God speaks to Moses, gives him not just the Ten Commandments, not just two tablets, but all kinds of wisdom. Part of what he gives Moses is Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy 18... God knows that one day someone will come forward and say, God told me to tell you this. And how will they know? You see, God authenticated Moses as his spokesman before all Israel. All Israel heard God's voice. But in the future, how will you know? And God says, here's how you'll know. A hundred percent accurate, short-term, verifiable predictions. You never find anybody in the Bible doing this stuff you see on TV all the time. Somebody here has a skin disease. There's nowhere in the Bible where prophets act like that. Jeremiah says to a guy, in six months you will drop dead. And then Jeremiah records, that happened. 
Isaiah has 25 chapters of short-term verifiable predictions about all the nations around Israel so that when he says, behold, the virgin will be with child, you will know that he is a spokesman who speaks on God's behalf. But some of this stuff that people say, you know, the band U2 got into quite a dilemma about this early on. Any U2 fans here? I know there are some. They were in a church where prophets regularly spoke to them about God's will. And after they were beginning to have some success, a prophet in their church told them, God is saying you need to break up the band. Glad they didn't listen to that prophet. But if you're in a church like that, it's hard to resist that. Again, Deuteronomy 18 says we should be very skeptical of those who claim to speak on God's behalf for us. So what am I saying? Am I saying that you just read the Bible and you just kind of figure it out on your own? Am I proposing something like utterly rationalistic? No. But I do think the Spirit speaks by, through, and with the Word. By, through, and with the Word. That can actually be more mysterious than we may think. But remember, who is the one who speaks and what's he like? He is the God who speaks. Now, there's some other problems and a couple other things I'll say, and then we'll, we'll see this Proverbs 16 passage. I really think one of the challenges in our day to this whole issue is the way we spiritualize perfectionism. See, perfectionists hate to make decisions unless they're perfectly sure the problem is the Bible nowhere gives the kind of assurance that we will have perfect surety about what we're to do, where we're to go to school, what we're to do for a living, who we're to marry. The Bible nowhere promises exact kind of guidance to those sorts of things. And so perfectionists basically don't want to move forward and then spiritualize it as I'm just waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. You know, I once did a study of all of the wisdom literature. That's what you guys are studying, right? Wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, the Psalms. If you search all of those wisdom books for the phrase waiting on the Lord, it never refers to waiting for God to tell you what to do in a life decision. Never. But sometimes we use biblical phrases, we pull them out of context and make them mean something completely different. Kind of like, you know, being slain in the spirit. When the Assyrian army is slain by God's spirit, they don't get up again. They're done. Right? And it's like this way. Waiting on the Lord always refers to waiting for God to deliver you from a trial. So, what is the, what is the, the where do we find ourselves? One of my professors in seminary used to say this. The real problem is not so much figuring out what God wants you to do. It's finding the courage to do it. And we think that if we knew what to do, we would just do it. Oh, really? <laughs> I have this one for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. There you go. Work on that, right? Because that's clear, right? But the Bible nowhere promises the kind of guidance that we seem to think he will give us, if only we could figure it out. And one of the hard things is you get around Christians who kind of talk like they figured it out, and you just feel like, I'm just, I'm, I just can't hear God's voice. Maybe, maybe that's not what the Bible promises. So we have to look at this issue through the biblical 
lens. And when you come here to Proverbs 16, that's what you see. The context is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It starts out that way, right? The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue, what actually comes out of your mouth, is from the Lord. That means it's within the context of his sovereign will. If there's anything that seems like it's under your control, it would be like what you're going to say next. Of course, you know, some of you may be like, you know, sometimes things come out of my mouth, I don't know where they came from. (laughs) Planning in your heart, human responsibility, you're not shamed for planning in your heart, but understand that what actually comes out of your mouth is within the context of God's sovereignty. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. If there was anybody in the ancient world that you thought had freedom to do whatever they wanted, it would be a king. It's good to be the king. Kings do whatever they want. But God says even the heart of the king, something that seems so intimate and fully in his control, is actually in my hand. So the Bible comes and says the first thing you need to understand about knowing the will of God is that God is sovereign. He's sovereign. But we also know that just because he's sovereign doesn't mean that we're robots. We're called to make responsible decisions with limited knowledge and sinful hearts, trusting not in our ability to make perfect decisions, but in the grace of a sovereign Lord. And we need wisdom. You know, When you come to the book of Proverbs, it's so important that you don't treat it as a book of little rules. How do you know that it's not a book of little rules? Well, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Those two verses are next to each other in the Proverbs on purpose. So that you would know what to do when you're confronted with a fool. But what do you do? Do you answer him according to his folly? Or do you not answer him according to his folly? If you think the book of Proverbs is a book of rules, you got a real dilemma. But if you actually press into that verse, what you realize is, Lord, help. We need wisdom. And isn't that how Proverbs begin? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You don't have to actually even perfectly know how to answer a fool. Both of these verses are options laid out there for you. You need wisdom to know which one to apply. But even if you pick the wrong one, God is still sovereign. God is still on the throne. So that's how Proverbs 1 starts out. The beginning of knowing God's will is to see that God's sovereignty is the context of our lives in which our lives are lived and decisions are made. What that might seem threatening, what the Bible says to to take from that is so encouraging. It's so encouraging. Even something that seems so under your control, like what you're going to say, is under his sovereign control. And then look at verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So God is sovereign, and what does it say about us? Our hearts are not pure. Man, I can't tell you how often I meet people who say, you know, I really think I want to do this, but I'm trying to figure out if that's what God wants me to do or what I want me to do. I'm like, where in the Bible do you find a verse saying you need to figure that out and suss that out and discern that? What I read in Proverbs 16, 2 is you can't figure it out. 
If you think you're going to be able to figure out your desire versus God's desire, other than what God says, this is my will that you flee sexual morality, or there's lots of other clear directions of Scripture, but as far as where you go to college or what you're going to study or what you're going to do for a living, the Bible nowhere says you've got to figure out whether it's your desire or God's desire. That's actually kind of Gnostic. It's kind of the idea, and again, it represents God as being a God who doesn't want you to do anything you like. You think that if I want to do it, it must not be God's will. That's actually a really screwed up idea about who God is. You understand? It really is. It reflects an idea of God who doesn't think you should ever get to do anything you like. That doesn't mean that there's not sin mixed in with your desires. Of course there is. Of course there is. Don't let that paralyze you. Accept it. Pray, God, help me and move forward. Right? Verse 3 reminds us of the importance of prayer. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It's so important to understand that Proverbs are not promises. So God is sovereign. Your hearts are not pure. You should pray and generally, prayer aligns you with the will of God. It's not a promise. It's a general principle. And then verse 4. Verse 4 is an interesting verse and maybe an upsetting verse. It says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That's a hard verse. It's a very strong verse about God's sovereignty. But I think the way it's supposed to function here in this section is to undercut one of the reasons that we have so much anxiety about decisions and about life, and it's the wicked. It's the wicked. The wicked are the ones who seem completely out of God's control. They seem to be able to do whatever they want, and they seem to have the power to thwart God's gracious, sovereign control of his world. And the Proverbs remind us, no, that's not true. God is sovereign your hearts are not pure, you need to pray, make the best decision you can, and trust that even when it looks like the wicked are going to bring everything crashing down, God made them, and God is sovereign over their end. Right? And that leads us to verse 5, to humility. Because wrestling with the idea of God's will should always bring us to humility. Everyone who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. So don't be arrogant in your heart. And again, be assured he will not go unpunished. Don't worry about the wicked and about where they will end. God has it. That's what he's saying. I've got this. I've got this. By steadfast love, verse 6, and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. That's a really interesting verse in the Proverbs. It almost sounds like it could have been taken from the prophets or from the Apostle Paul. What iniquity is it talking about? I mean, at one level, it could just be as long as you kind of stick your nose to the grindstone, then, you know, you'll take care of problems. I don't think it's saying that. Steadfast love is a big word in the Bible. It's this word hesed. It refers to God's covenant love. By whose steadfast love and faithfulness is iniquity atoned for? We know on the other side of the cross, the fullest understanding of this verse is only seen in what Jesus did. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of the Lord, by the way, guys. 
You know that because Psalm 130 says, because there is forgiveness with you, therefore will I fear you. So fearing God can never be being afraid of God. Fearing God is connecting the dots. Derek Kidner, great Old Testament scholar, said the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. That's right, yeah. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Again, it's not a promise. But generally, when you serve God and seek his will and live as he calls us to live, it spills over into other relationships. Again, it's not a promise. It's not a promise. But the thing is, being rescued from your arrogant pride, which is what the gospel does, has a way of making you easier to get along with. Or at least it should. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Now this is interesting because in verse 8 it says sometimes you do have a choice. And one choice seems like it will be, make you very successful. And the other choice is clearly righteousness. Right? So there are certain kind of boundaries, if you will. I've got a choice to do this or to do that. Well, this, I really would be successful. Yeah, but it's also against God's law. Oh, so you don't need to wrestle with that one, right? I don't know if God wants me to to do this. Well, I don't think he does because he clearly says in his word, don't do this, right? But again, I also think that it gets at the real heart, which is not so much knowing what to do, but finding the courage to do it. And it has a lot to do with whether you believe God is sovereign and he cares for you. And then it brings us back again to verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So what do we get? I, I think one of the main things you get out of this is the importance of being humble. Being humble. You know, I had a great, um, great opportunity to see this in seminary. A guy named Dr. Koistra, Paul Koistra, is the president of Covenant Seminary. This is a good 25 years ago. And I was thinking of this because you all just prayed for MTW. Mission to the World is the PCA's World Missions Organization, right? Now, Dr. Koistra was the president of Covenant Seminary. The seminary had really turned around under his leadership and was really growing and thriving. He was enjoying it. And then there was one afternoon where he called all the, the students together we, he sat us down, and he said, you know, guys, I'm leaving the seminary. And we're like, what? He goes, he goes I don't even know if it's the right decision. He goes, I, I've, I've been working here at the seminary. God seems to have blessed this work. I'm enjoying it. I seems I'm gifted for this. But mission to the world has gotten themselves in a real mess. Now, again, this is 25 years ago, Okay. They were over a million dollars in debt. They were at the point where they were going to maybe have to pull every missionary off the field because they had done this kind of moving money around this way and that, and somebody, an auditor, came in and was like, whoa, you guys can't do this. So they called up Dr. Koyster. Will you help us? I'll never forget the refreshing candor as he let us in on how he wrestled with that decision. Here's what he said. He goes, they want me to help. They think I have gifts to help. I might be able to help. I might completely fail. I don't know, but I'm going to try. And that was it. There was no, I prayed about it and God led me and told me. that. No, sure, he prayed about it. But at the end of the day, he didn't get any voice in his head. He got, I might have gifts. 
This might be a bad decision, but there's a need. And these people think I can help. I'm going to help. God blessed it. It worked. Then he went to a college, Erskine. Same kind of thing. This time it didn't go so well. He got fired from that one. But you know what? He's not worrying whether he has the ability to hear the voice of God. I mean, so many people who come to Nashville because they believe God told them, and it gets hard when they get here. And then they don't only have the problem of it's hard, but can I actually hear God's voice? I'm like, oh, I wish you'd been more humble the first time. I wish you'd had people that helped disciple you into the truth to say, I don't know if God's leading me to Nashville. I have freedom to come here. I'm going to try. Right? Humility is of an inestimable value in pursuing the will of God. We make bad decisions all the time, but it doesn't thwart the sovereignty of God. Be free. Don't you want to be Proverbs 16, men and women? Like, I don't know if God wants me to do this. I'm going to try. And as Martin Luther said one time, I love this quote. I'm close with this. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. And when you read the Bible, that is the focus. Who is a God who would speak and not leave his will hidden for us to try to play all kinds of games to figure it out? The more you focus on who God is, I think the less you get so concerned about trying to figure out exactly what he wants you to do. Oh, there's certainly principles, but there's not the kind of exact guidance promised anywhere in the Bible. And let that set you free. For some of you are like, oh, I don't know what to do now. Okay, great, you don't. <laughs> That's reality. Live your life. Was Martin Luther said one time, maybe a lot of people don't understand this context of this quote. Martin Luther said one time, sin boldly. Do you know what he meant by that? He meant if you're not sure what to do, don't just sort of sit back in passive paralyzation. Just do something and do it with zeal and with boldness. Because your relationship with your father is not based on you making perfect decisions. It's based on God who lived and died in our place in the person of Jesus. So let's pray, and then we're going to come to this table, which continues to reveal the heart of our God for us.